We will look at uh, some passages there. Let's pray and ask God just to bless our time in the Word. Father, we uh, just approach your Word with uh, trepidation because it's your Word to us, the Holy God's Word to sinful man, but it's got really good news for us. So we ask for you to help us to grasp all that you have for us this morning in the, the Word of God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I love Christmas for a lot of reasons, but mainly because it celebrates the most wonderful ideas that can occupy the human mind. That's why I love it, because I like to think about things. And at Christmas, those ideas are actually visualized in our culture. That's kind of what I like. On cards, we send. I get cards, and there's those ideas right there on the face of those cards sometimes. Um, on displays that many of us might have in our homes, or that's sitting right up here in front of the pulpit this morning. A manger full of hay, and kneeling parents, and uh, shepherds watching, and an angelic proclamation going on. The most wonderful ideas ever to enter into man's mind are put in verses and sung in delightful tunes like we've done this morning, tunes that cheer the heart. And no one at any time can think more wonderful thoughts than those that are associated with the Christmas season. And among the greatest of the, these ideas, one of the great ideas there is that God, the infinite God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who's made all things has not abandoned us. Amen. He cares about us. He sees us as we really are, and in spite of that, He cares about us. He wants us to be reconciled to Him. Yes, even us. God, the being that made the world and all the wonders of creation and the vast universe and the tiny machines that maintain our cells and every single cell in our body every day, the Creator God who rules all things and whose rules we have broken willfully and repeatedly, He seeks us out. That's the message of Christmas. He sees a lost world lost because mankind is lost and He wants to rescue lost people so you can personalize that idea, and you should, too. God has not abandoned us means God has not abandoned me. That's how you should think about it. God has not abandoned me. He's made a way for me to belong to him, to be his. Can you think of a more wonderful idea than that, to occupy your mind? I can't. I can't think of one. An infinite, powerful, holy God loves me, a most miserable and unworthy creature. That's an astounding thought. God has not abandoned me. And there's still a more wonderful idea, deeply and eternally bound to this idea of God's love for unworthy human beings. And that most wonderful idea, which is really at the center of God's love, can be found in the word incarnation incarnation. And incarnation is all about the, the child in the manger. The most wonderful idea turns out to be a person. And that is what this person 
did and who this person was. And I'll come back to incarnation in a minute. Here's another Christmas word we just sang about that has entered the language of Christmas. We hear it all the time at Christmas time, and usually only then. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's a Hebrew word. It's a very old word. It's a very old prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means God with us. That's what the word means. And that means much more than that God is on our side. God is with us. It means that God is personally present in that child. When an angel appeared to Mary, he said to her, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. He said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So we are seeing that this child, a a real child, he has a mother. Uh, conception uh, is going to occur with her. He will be a human being. Uh, Cells will form, blood will flow, a heart will start to beat, muscle and bone and lungs will form and her body will feed that body for the normal period of time where that happens. But he will have no earthly father and so that's why Mary, she asks a question, she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring will be called the Son of God. So he will be a direct miracle of God, but he will will be a true child, a true human being, uh, the Son of God and the Son of Man, which he liked to call himself. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man because the word incarnation has so much meaning. It's real. He's not appearing as a man. He is a man. Man and God. God become man. Even in the angel's words, we see the triune nature of God. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The Most High will be uh, the power that's involved. And the Son of God. So the Spirit, the Father and the Son are all there, even in the angelic announcement. The Son is God incarnate. So what does incarnate mean? Well, we all here in religious terms, we've heard of reincarnation, right? The Bible does not teach that. But if you don't have a re on it, you have incarnation. And the idea of reincarnation is that your soul is disjointed from your body, separated, and it'll land again in some other body. And so, but the idea is the embodiment of a spirit or a soul into a person. So incarnation, reincarnation is not biblical, but the incarnation is biblical here. God, eternal spirit, is embodied in a human being. So we know the word carnal, you know, the word carnal means of the flesh, right? Or the word carne, when you get carne asada, that's meat, right? Flesh, you're gonna eat something. Carnivorous means flesh eating. So it's a very earthy, real-world term about bodies, human bodies, physical bodies. You can't escape the physicality of the word flesh. And John's gospel begins, John chapter 1, verse 1, begins before the creation even occurred. 
And John's first words introduce us to a person, the, the logos, translated the word. The word is a person. Listen, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. With and was. Distinct and yet the same. So again, we're talking Trinitarian thinking, aren't we? The word is God, the word is with God, has a relationship with God. Let me keep reading about the word, verse two. He, see it's a person, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the word made everything. The word was not made, he simply was. But everything else was made by him. This is a very carefully worded statement here, very carefully. He made everything. The Word is God, the Creator, the true God, the infinite God, the Maker of heaven and earth. And then there's more. If you kind of skip down John chapter 1, he talks about John the Baptist a little bit. Then he gets down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh. That's incarnation, enfleshment, God becoming a human being. He doesn't stop being God, but he becomes true man. And that's the great mystery. And so this amazing, wonderful idea that God should seek us and bring reconciliation to us in person as one of us. I can't think of a more wonderful idea than that. I can't think of anything to occupy the human mind more wonderful than that. It's the most incredible thing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we sing words like, well, the last stanza of O Come All Ye Faithful there, Word of the Father, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, right? Oh, come, let us adore him. Indeed we should. Who else deserves our adoration? Or maybe we would sing along with Charlie Brown, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? which says in the second stanza, veiled in, stanza, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. It's one of my favorite verses of all time right there. It's all there. Those are the most worthy things a human being or a beagle can, can think about it. <laughs> it's the most wonderful thing. That is Christmas right there. It's the most wonderful thing you can think about. The Creator God came to us as one of us to save us. So the most wonderful idea is the most wonderful person, the most wonderful man. And for me, that's incredibly compelling. I mean, when I think about the things that led me to faith in Christ, It's those two things together. You've got the most wonderful idea that a human being can think of, that God would become a man to save helpless, lost sinners. 
And no one ever conceived of a God like that before, before the Bible. In fact, nobody ever conceived of an infinite personal God before the Bible either. Holy, righteous, all-powerful, full of loving kindness and mercy. Only the Jews knew that God because he revealed himself to them. And that's awesome. The Jews had that in their Bible, but the Bible itself said that God would do more, that a new covenant was coming. The Bible itself said that God would send the Messiah that was coming to usher in a kingdom of righteousness and to bear our sins. But Jesus, when it shows up that it's him and the person that we know in the Gospels, Jesus Christ, God is a savior personally, he himself, by the Lagos, the son, entering, to, entering into humanity to bear our sin in himself. Nobody ever conceived of a God that would do that before. And no one's ever conceived of a better idea since. It's been a long time. Nobody's come up with a better idea. It could just be a beautiful story. The perfect story. The unsurpassed story that a couple fishermen made up. But then there is Jesus, and that's the other part that I can't escape, you know? Truly the perfect man. Holy, perfectly holy, but sympathetic. Righteous, but merciful. Uncompromising, but tender. Zealous, passionate, but never strident or out of control or over the top. Completely confident, and truly humble. There's nobody like Jesus that's ever lived or been thought of. His words, so wise, so insightful, so lasting, so strong. I asked myself, who could have invented such a man? So you have the most wonderful idea ever thought an infinite holy God cares about human beings and would enter into human flesh. And then you see the baby grown up and the man he was, and there's been nobody ever like him. That's not a coincidence. The greatest story brings forth the perfect man in history. There's nothing like that in the thought of man. Nothing even comes close. I mean, not anywhere close to him. So I decided it's gotta be true. It's got to be true. And he's the one I'm going to follow. And I've never regretted that. Nothing I've learned since has even challenged that or changed that. And of course, there's more. The historical evidence is very strong that Jesus rose from the dead. But I didn't know that, all that historical evidence stuff first when I became a Christian. That was just icing on the cake. And that was 40 years ago. And the more I learn, the more compelling the story is and the more deeply rooted in the real world it is. The compelling nature of Christ and the story only deepens and becomes stronger. So my 40 years since that time only convinces me more that there is no other answer. There's no compelling belief system or person to trust with my heart and my soul than Jesus Christ. Because he is by far the best thing that's ever happened in the world. And that's because of who he is. The word became flesh. The only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is God and man, truly God and truly man. His humanity is not diminished by his deity, nor is his deity diminished by his humanity. He's really fully man and he's still God. There's two texts in the Bible that really kind of nail this down. I just want to share them with you. One is Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. It's real short. I'm just going to read it for you. A very short, clear statement from the Apostle Paul that keeps us from getting messed up in our head about the incarnation. Paul says, Colossians 2.9, for in him, talking about Jesus, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So there's no diminishing of his deity. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All fullness, deity, that's a lot. Nothing lacking. Nothing's left out. The man was God in human flesh, and yet, in Philippians chapter 2, or you might want to turn there, Paul offers even more. So he's teaching in Philippians 2 Christians about unity in the church, which some churches really struggle with. <laughs> I've learned over the years. Not our church, though. We, we have a pretty wonderfully unified church. But in dealing with division or conflict or difficulties in the church, to, to solve that problem, it requires humility. Humility. And regarding other people as more important than you are. That's like bottom line key how to get along with humans. Other people are actually more important than you are. More important than I am. But he has a great example to give them of that. And it's in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. And the example is the Lord Jesus himself. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, that word form is really important. We kind of use form as an external thing, but in, in Greek philosophy and Greek writing, the form is the essence of something. So he existed in the essence, the form of God. That, that was the real things. We're using Plato language here. Form is the real thing. That's what he was. He was really God, but he didn't hold on to that. He emptied himself, taking the form, the reality of a bondservant, a servant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So first he says Christ existed in the form of God. So again, that's the essential reality of him. He was equal with the Father. But he didn't cling to that. He emptied himself. Now we already talked about Colossians 2.9. All the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So emptying himself can't mean not being God anymore because Paul was really clear that all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Nothing was missing. He was fully, fully God. We've already talked about that. So it doesn't mean a diminished deity, but he did limit himself. Well, how did he limit himself? He limited himself by adding something, becoming what God had not been, which is a human being, a bondservant specifically, a, a creature, if you will, taking that place. God is not a bondservant. God isn't owing anybody anything. He deigns to minister to us and serve us and love us. And, but he's not a bondservant. He doesn't obey. Who does God obey? 
right? Doesn't obey anybody. But in becoming a man, the eternal son of God took a man's role and a man's purpose to serve God. So Paul uses the phrase, he humbled himself. He became obedient even unto death. So he voluntarily, most willingly, lived as a man, not exercising his divine powers such as omniscience, knowing everything, omnipotence, having all power, uh, omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time. Those are, the, those are realities of God. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and becoming a human being by the incarnation. So, you know, he did no miracles at all for the first 30 or so years of his life. He was a regular person. The, the miracle at the wedding in Cana was his first miracle. The Bible says that. So he lived like we do. Every day. Only he didn't sin. That was the difference. But he had to work. He helped the family. Had to obey the Romans when they kicked him around and pushed him down the street. Had to learn to read. He had to learn to build stuff. You know, he didn't come out of the womb a carpenter. Now, you know, I'm God. Just hand me that axe over there and the hammer. I'll take care of that for you, Dad. No, he had to learn those skills. The Bible actually says he grew in wisdom and stature. He had to learn those things. He had to learn how to read and talk all of those things. He experienced the fullness of human life. I'd like to read for you an imperfect but helpful analogy from um, a theologian named Bruce Ware. He, uh, he's describing how Jesus can be God and live as a man truly at the same time. It's just an analogy. No analogies are perfect, but I thought it was really helpful. So let me read that for you. He says, Imagine now a great and glorious kingdom that is ruled by a strong and wealthy king. This king has every privilege one can imagine and he possesses the finest of everything money can buy. He eats each day from the choicest cuisine. He wears the most elegant and exquisite of clothes. He's cared for by the highest educated and most skilled doctors in the land and he is protected by an imperishable force of royal soldiers. Yet one day, as the king was taken on a short journey to another portion of the royal city, he passed an area he had seldom seen. Before him on the streets, he observed several beggars, and he could not get these poor men out of his mind. On his return to the palace, he thought to himself, I wonder what it's like to live life as a beggar. And he could not remove this question from his mind. So, with determination to find out just what such a life is like, he decided to move out of the royal palace and onto some of the impoverished streets of his city. And instead of wearing the fine clothing of his wardrobe, he put on the tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. In every way he could, he acquired the day-to-day -day life and limitations of a beggar. Now, having taken on the restrictions of beggarly life, when the king was hungry, although he could have called for the royal chefs to bring him a choice meal in order to live life as a beggar, instead... He instead learned what it was like to go hungry or beg food. And when the king grew ill from the diseases around him, while he could have called for the highly trained doctor to attend him, in order to live the life of a beggar, he accepted being sick with little or any help for his illness. And when insulted and mistreated by mean-spirited passers-by, although he could have called the royal guard to defend him and bring, him, bring justice to bear against this cruelty, in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted with no retaliation the mistreatment and insults foisted upon him. So while all the qualities of kingship were retained fully by this king become beggar, 
the expression and manifestation of many of the rights and privileges he had as a king could not be made since he had chosen to live life as a beggar. Or again, while the king possessed all of the qualities that are his as a king in taking on the life of a beggar, many of those kingly qualities could not be expressed while at the same time living fully and with integrity the life that a beggar lives. The point is this, so now he's trying to explain it. You, you get it, right? The king cannot live according to all the rights and privileges he knows as a king while also living life genuinely and authentically as a beggar. Once he chooses to take on the life of a beggar, he must necessarily accept the restriction and limitation of the expression of qualities, rights, and prerogatives he has as a king. Although he is a king, and hence he continues to possess everything that is his as a king, he now also is a beggar. So he must accept the fact that many of his kingly rights and prerogatives can no longer be utilized or expressed. He now has given himself fully to the task of taking on life as a beggar. And in so doing, the limitations of kingly expression are necessary. I think that helps. Do you get that? So Christ in becoming human, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. He didn't in any way cease to be God. But God's prerogatives, God's eternality, all the things that would be contrary to life as a human being, he just set them aside. He did not exercise those prerogatives. So to do the one task, he limits himself. And that's what he means by emptied himself. And the incarnation this idea of self-emptying becomes a profound condescension on God's part to be man. So now to really understand it all in the depth of God's love for us, let me read again that part of uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Dying on a cross was not some sad twist of fate that happened to Jesus or an unexpected end. It was an act of obedience. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Son, the Logos, the Word, the creator of all things, became human to die on a cross by some mysterious coincidence on the feast of Passover when lambs were being slaughtered to make the to remember the day in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the children of Israel. No more death, no death for them because of the blood of the lamb shed for them. It was John the Baptist who told his disciples, you know, I have to decrease. That guy is going to increase. You need to follow him. And they heard him say about Jesus, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what he was doing in the incarnation, becoming that lamb. The very day the Israelite family slew a spotless lamb to remember the, that death passed by all who had lamb's blood over their door is the day Jesus was taken and crucified. It's a deeply embedded picture in, of the incarnate son in Jewish religion that was done for 1,500 years leading up to the day he fulfilled it himself. He was the Lamb of God, the sinless, spotless sacrifice for the lost, the wicked, the corrupt men of the world. So Jesus himself, describing the purpose of his incarnation, said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Of course, if God really came, he should be served, right? But he didn't come for that. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he said about himself. So as God should have been served, he humbled himself, even to death, a horrible death, to satisfy God's wrath against sin. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's Romans chapter 5. That's the purpose of Christmas, that God should undertake himself what needed to be done to reconcile human beings to himself. So Jesus is God's chosen means of reconciliation. That's why he's the only savior. He alone is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. So he alone can achieve the salvation of wicked men, being God and man. There's a lot of religions out there, but there's only one savior sent by God. Only one person is God in human flesh to pay for our sins. That's why Christmas is so special and that's why what he did is the most wonderful thing any human being can ponder in their heart. But don't stop with pondering. Don't just ponder. You got to embrace it. You have to receive him, embrace him. And that means humbling yourself and repenting of your sins and your failure to honor him and accepting that he died for your sins and that he has the sovereign right to rule your life. Those two things. Do that and he will love you forever as his adopted child. That's the promise that we have. And all that begins with Christmas. So fulfill the spirit of Christmas and embrace the Savior that God has sent into the world. The most wonderful idea ever thought is there because it's true. So make sure it's true for you. That's the most important thing. Let's pray. Lord, you have led us to yourself. You have led in many ways, but none so wonderful as your coming among us as one of us. A visitation, an incarnation. It's glorious and purposeful as you became our Passover lamb, our perfect sacrifice. Call forth from our dull hearts, O Father, eternal worship and praise, for you alone are worthy. This we ask in the name of our Savior, Christ, King and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.